As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and teammate rivalries have been a big talking point lately, with the Mercedes drivers crossing swords at Suzuka, the swings at Ferrari, Perez's struggles to match Verstappen and Piastri's rise. But what's the recipe for the perfect driver pairing in F1, and why does it seem to be so rare? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us are the race's own squabbling teammates Scott Mitchell-Malm and Ben Anderson. Well, Ben, we'll come to you first. How are you doing, and how do you see the hierarchy between you and Scott as teammates? Are you the number one podcaster? Uh, absolutely it's in my contract scott is only here to uh back me up and support my every whim in my quest to dominate podcasts is that why scott's actually recording in an adjacent room and if you have a technical failure he has to give up his equipment so you can continue talking that's right you got it excellent uh, I, I like that i like the analogy but unfortunately considering the era in which that was more of a thing in formula one i don't think podcasts were around at that point <laughs> I was say there's less of a contractual um, obligation for me to be subservient to Ben in, in podcast form as teammates go, and it's more just you know Ben just has that that aura that ego of the number one, which just means it doesn't matter whether it's contractual or not. He will just bludgeon his way into being the the, the alpha in any situation podcast wise. So you just concentrating Scott on focusing on your own performance and trying to assert him through just quality of chat. Yeah, I think ultimately you just you can only really control what what you're on top of, right? And like what is directly in my purview is to just be, you know, the most eloquent, the the most uh, forthright in my opinion, the most um, insightful. You know, Ben can Ben can have all of the nice sort of bells and whistles and all all the thrills and stuff like that, but he's very much style over substance. So I feel like that's where you know there is an opportunity. I can still play the team game, you know, a bit of yin and yang. He offers something, I offer something else. But I think when it comes down to it, after a full season, you look back on the way that we've contributed to the podcast and think actually. Actually, do you know what? Scott edged it. I'm looking forward to seeing Scott Mitchell Mam 3.0 in 2024. I, I do feel I do feel actually like in the next few weeks I might cut I might arrive into one of those end of season mental spirals um that we've seen a couple that's what of it's, that's what it's like to be my teammate, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe <laughs> maybe that was uh 
maybe that's secretly been people that's the likes of Valtteri Bottas and Sergio Perez have struggled so much to assert themselves upon uh, superior teammates is that they've also um, had you know newborn children at incredibly inopportune times during the F1 season <laughs> We'll try not to go to Bottas 2018 on this uh, particular podcast, but <laughs> the most important thing for both of you to remember is that I'm in charge, and if I give you a team order to shut up, it shall be done. You're the so team those, boss. You're exactly, the team boss. Yeah. Those are the rules of engagement. You can claim that if you want, Ed, but really and truthfully, Ben and I aren't going to pay attention until the likes of Glenn Freeman actually comes over the radio mid-podcast and gives us a firm order. That's when we know <laughs> that we really need to stop playing around. I've got him on a... There's a special button I can press to to loop him in if either of you misbehave or both of you misbehave, which is more likely. So, But enough of this. Let's get into some real teammate action. And Ben, we'll start off with you. And I'd like to start off with a philosophical question. Wow. Because we're very used to the idea of teammates in motorsport. And the F1 model with those two drivers has long since been the norm. But despite it being ingrained by time, it is actually quite a curious scenario, isn't it? Well, indeed. You've got basically the guy you most want to beat whoever you might be in racing alongside you you have to work with this person to help push the team forward develop the car ensure that your employer is as successful as possible while also somehow balancing that with your own self-interest and self-interest rules in racing it's a selfish sport it's about trying to be number one beat everybody and as the cliche goes the first person you need to be is your teammate always but of course it's much more complicated than that so the the name teammate i mean i guess some there's some examples of drivers who raced alongside each who raced alongside each other who were quite friendly you know you think of Ayrton Senna and Gerhard Berger but the dynamic whereby one driver was clearly better than the other somehow helped that and obviously when Berger started racing for McLaren he wanted to like all drivers do, prove that he was as good as the guy in the other car or better. And the dynamic always shifts depending on how that initial situation unfolds and where it settles. And sometimes it settles into a comfortable place like that relationship did. Sometimes it settles very much into an uncomfortable place and there are many famous examples. So yeah, not an ideal scenario and very difficult to determine what the exact perfect chemistry is. It's that strange juxtaposition, isn't it, between that point that Ben made about the first person that you want to be and need to be in F1 is your teammate because they are the only other person that shares that equipment, theoretically. Obviously, the conspiracy theorists will say that Ben and I have very, very different quality of podcast recording equipment when we uh, convene for an episode <laughs> like this. But that is I just, just adapt to it better, that's all it is. <laughs> it's just such a fascinating juxtaposition because just you, you you have this duality that exists you, on the one hand the only the only pure competition that in, that exists within formula 1 between drivers is that of the one between teammates but because because it's the most straight fight theoretically um you, it's also the only other driver on the grid who you probably know has this race plan or has you know their strengths and weaknesses so intimately you see their data you know where you're stronger where you're weaker you know what their preferences are you know where where they're struggling or or anything like that you have all of this information to use to further your own cause but then at the same time as Ben was saying you've got the team element so it's such a it's such a difficult one because if when that self-interest rules which it does 99% of the time 
then how on earth do you get these two drivers to actually completely throw themselves in to the best interests of the team? I don't think it can ever really happen. If you have two F1 drivers in the same team, two teammates who are trying to be the be the best driver and also crucially have ability levels that are roughly the same and therefore gives them the opportunity to try and stake their claim to be the best driver you you will always have a fundamental mismatch between what's in the best interest of the drivers and what the team needs from them as teammates and there's just this constant uh, constantly adjusting scale where sometimes it almost doesn't matter because the team's so uncompetitive that the drivers actually aren't competing for what they really want to so they don't really care who comes out on top and it just removes that edge of tension sometimes it's so bad that all the drivers have to fight for is internal team honor which creates tension and sometimes if you've got it really 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 good the cars are so great that the ultimate prize is on offer and at that point everything's out the window because teammates be damned you will do what it takes for you to be the one that wins the driver's championship the team's championship will always be secondary in terms of a driver's mental makeup the interesting thing is that there's also no such thing as equal number one drivers teams will say there is and there'll be equal opportunity equal (laughs) equipment but there are some things that cannot be equal if you're running nose to tail on track you cannot both pit at the same time if you do one will be disadvantaged by the time loss in the pits that's that's a hard block to equality and that's just the way the rules are because there's one pit box for everyone if you're the stronger driver you will be more influential usually in terms of the car development even if it's not in an active way in terms of what you're asking for but what tolerances you have for certain characteristics because we talk about driving styles and as we've said before a big part of driving styles is actually tolerance and adaptability what can you tolerate what can you adapt to we see that with Verstappen so there becomes this virtuous circle that if you're marginally the better driver there are other factors that have to then benefit you because the team actually can't create a scenario whereby you both have exactly the same opportunity. And and that's when it gets very interesting because you can talk about equality and equal opportunity for the drivers all you want, but there will never or very, very rarely be a genuine balance between two. That's an important distinction to make, Ed, because you can have the idea, you can really buy into egalitarian principles, can't you, and, and believe that, you know the 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 right to equal treatment um, should should exist, and every driver, uh, or, sorry, your drivers within your team should have the right to equal treatment. That's fine, and I think actually the majority of teams do buy into that. But the distinction is between believing that that's the right thing to do and doing it where possible, versus being able to do it all the time. Because as you say those situations are impossible to guarantee. There will ultimately be points when cars are running first and second on track or in perhaps slightly different positions in terms of the championship when you're getting into the final six or seven races and driver X is is leading the points by 15, uh, it has a 15-point margin over an, uh, over someone from another team. Driver Y is 30 points back, technically in title contention, but just isn't the team's main hope. All of these different kinds of situations take you away from that egalitarian ideal and put you in the realms of reality where there, there is just ultimately going to be scenarios that favour one over the other. And a lot of it depends also on particular circumstances and the way the team is structured or the, the way the team has had to deal with these kind of scenarios in recent history. You get drivers, obviously, who will go to certain teams because 
a certain status will be conferred and they will get certain uh, benefits from going to that team, priority on new parts or a certain subver- a certain subservience locked in to whoever drives the other car. Sometimes there'll be just an unfortunate situation where the two, tri- two drivers are too often too close on track and fighting amongst each other and the team may not have a policy but then suddenly has to implement a policy in terms of ruling on who benefit benefits in a certain scenario and team order will come into play and the drivers will then react to that in their own way sometimes they'll they'll see the logic in the moment and comply sometimes they won't and that creates a tension and then it becomes a bigger thing that the team hasn't necessarily planned for so they're having to react to it sometimes they'll be ahead of the curve so when Kimi Raikkonen and Felipe Massa were at Ferrari and Ferrari were a championship force remember those halcyon days Ferrari fans they always had a policy that they would wait until after the summer break I think after Monza was the usual cutoff and it would be whoever's best placed in the championship at that point the other driver would fall into line and get behind that that driver's bid sometimes teams would wait later than that sometimes teams just won't rule and they'll let their drivers fight it out and you saw obviously in 07 with McLaren Hamilton and Alonso that they tripped up over each other in the championship really and allowed Ferrari to to nick that title at the death so very difficult sometimes teams will shift from thinking yes actually we can handle having the two best drivers Red Bull probably felt that in the the Vettel Weber days where Weber was you know not quite on Vettel's level certainly not consistently enough and certainly Vettel became dominant through his period as Weber's teammate that they just about had a lid on things obviously there were flashpoints but you know they remained teammates for five seasons was it in total achieved a lot of success Rebel thought yes okay we can handle having the two best drivers and of course then when Max Verstappen was slotted in alongside Daniel Ricciardo after a period of it being quite amicable between Vettel and Ricardo, Verstappen and Ricardo wasn't quite that, and you suddenly had two guys who felt they should be number one, Ricardo by legacy and Verstappen by kind of pure force of will and talent. And that combusted a bit, and suddenly you had both drivers being hauled to Milton Keynes to apologise to the team, and then suddenly you feel like Red Bull's shifted its mindset and wants to have, you know, maybe a different, easier dynamic to work with. The same at Mercedes. Rosberg and Hamilton was massively explosive as a dynamic and Hamilton Bottas wasn't it and deliberately so because it was draining on the entire organization to have two drivers just going at it hell for leather all the time so the team often has to kind of shift its approach based on who it has what the circumstances dictate and really just what it can put up with at a given moment and it is interesting because there will always be an element to which performance dictates the hierarchy that is the the overall thing no matter what your best laid plans are that will decide things but yeah it's worth asking scott before we get into some of the matchups that we do have on the grid this year that are interesting case studies what's the ideal teammate philosophy is it simply go for the best drivers available is it a clear leader and a support act i might say a stooge in the second car <laughs> or somewhere in between because as i say, this is dictated by performance ultimately rather than necessarily what opportunity you give to the two of them and actually the choice of drivers is the main driving force in what kind of dynamic you have well if Valtteri Bottas didn't like being called a wingman alongside Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes I dread to think how he'd have felt being described as a stooge 
that that would have uh, probably that would have probably even got Valtteri, who is fairly laid back, uh, quite quite worked hard. I don't think you ever used that in in in, in print, did you, Ed? <laughs> no, I didn't. If you like, I can I can ask him if he felt he was a stooge at Mercedes and uh, characterise him as that and see what he says. Yeah, I think it's we quite, should do he's, that he's over quite, the next few he's races. Quite, Mild-mannered Bottas, he might find it uh, amusing with a distance of time. Yeah, I think he's probably your best chance to be able to get away with saying like that, something, saying something like that to him. I think, in terms of answering the question seriously, um, I, I think honestly, it does. It depends on where am I pitching this teammate relationship to, because um, I do think the answer differs slightly depending on how competitive you think your team is and what your team's ambitions ultimately are. For example. Um, what Haas needed this year versus last year was they they needed a driver who could come in and light a fire up Kevin Magnussen's backside. And that's why Nico Hülkenberg has worked so effectively. So uh, you might think, actually, I think that kind of pairing wouldn't work for a a team with title ambitions because I think neither of those drivers is quite enough the full package to really lead a team in a title situation but it works brilliantly for Haas because it's about as strong a level as you can get for in the midfield team you'll get two drivers who have different strengths probably complement each other quite nicely and help raise one another's ceiling so in that specific context that kind of teammate relationship is perfect but I think uh, the if I was going for just if I had the most competitive prospects or intentions possible I really want to be fun with the answer and say I want two alphas in the team just absolutely go at it I want Alonso and Hamilton in 2007 I don't care about the fireworks because it's just going to bring me the absolute best but honestly I just I, I, I see something like the Hamilton Bottas alliance at Mercedes as a contender for the best teammate pairing in F1 history because of what it facilitated within the organisation where it fell down and where it has a big asterisk against it in the in that debate over how effective the teammate pairing was is that Bottas by the end ultimately wasn't quite good enough to give Mercedes what it needed. Now he did contribute to that constructors title in 2021 but when Hamilton needed a rear gunner in Abu Dhabi, when both drivers needed a rear gunner in Abu Dhabi to help influence things, Bottas was nowhere. He was and and at the restart when Hamilton was fully exposed um, to to Verstappen, Bottas was too busy being dive-bombed I think by Yuki Tsunoda to have any influence on the outcome of that race in a time fight which is just not good enough and it was Sergio Perez who actually had the biggest influence on on that race Um, so Perez stepped up there but we know that Perez's weakness is that one lap pace which means he's out of the picture for too much of the season so neither a Perez or a Bottas is what you need you want a you want an absolute standout a-grade driver definitely your de facto number one that you don't explicitly state is a number one and then you want the best driver possible in the other car to be the wingman, to be there on the days to, that your number one driver, your de facto number one driver, isn't quite there to be on pole and to win or whatever. This other guy picks up four, five, six wins ideally over a season, maybe not that many, but is there, is quick enough, is tough enough in races to be a proper wingman, to make an active contribution to winning both titles rather than um, ha- having a you know a passive role in that, but is crucially isn't good enough. Is ultimately good enough to cause problems over a full season. They need to be a driver that fits into that very 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 narrow crossover in the Venn diagram between being good enough to give you what you want, but not so good that they cause problems. Yeah, every F one fan is going to want to see 
the two alphas in the same team going at it. Your Senna, Prost. Bottas and Joe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, perfect. Senna, Prost, Alonso, Hamilton, that kind of best of the best in the same car going at it. But of course, it, it, it rarely works out for the team. It's explosive, hard to keep a lid on. Having the number one and clear number two works if you're in a dominant position. It worked really well for Ferrari in the Schumacher era. It's working now, I'd say, for Red Bull with Verstappen and Perez. Perez, you could argue, is underperforming as a number two, but it doesn't matter. Red Bull can say, well, we're winning both championships comfortably. Perez is second in the Drivers' Championship. But in a competitive situation where you've got threats, and this is where the Bottas-Hamilton dynamic let Mercedes down a little bit at the end, as Scott outlined, you can't afford to have your number two driver too far off the number one driver and let other guys into the gap. So the the kind of perfect sweet spot is almost having what we describe as the 1.5 driver, the guy that is going to end up being number two, but doesn't yet realise they're number two and is still pushing to to be the number one. Bottas had that spell right at the start of his Mercedes career. Ricardo and Verstappen were like that in 2017 and through the beginning of 2018 until it, it crumbled. Rosberg and Hamilton was like that, and, and it just remained that dynamic because there was no external competition. So you can't really ever sustain the perfect partnership, I don't think. Um, the number one, number two is probably the most durable and and easy to work with because it's just clear but obviously it, it doesn't really stand the stress test of white hot competition as Formula One intends in most seasons yeah and it, it just I think it burns out doesn't it I think you can probably have yeah. that relationship for three or four seasons but ultimately there will come a point where your number two is crushed. Yeah, as as Bottas was. Yeah, yeah exactly. And Perez you know, probably if, is now as well, you would say. Exactly. You know, if Bottas had run, if that Bottas-Hamilton alliance had run the course until the end of 2020, then you'd be looking back on that and just saying that worked perfectly. Like that was brilliant for everyone involved. It brought the best out of Hamilton. It won Mercedes every title and it made Bottas a multiple Grand Prix winner in a career in which he otherwise wouldn't have been a multiple Grand Prix winner. And he gave it his best shot, came up slightly short, but he can say that he, the person he came up short against was one of the best drivers in Formula One history. That extra season in 2021 puts a, it's a blot on Bottas's copybook, isn't it, at, at Mercedes? And, you, 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 yeah, the Perez example is is a good one as well. It's kind of like when you have that dynamic, you do risk that second driver kind of almost over overstaying at the team because it just it just fades away. And Mercedes had already kind of lost faith in Bottas by that point anyway, which won't have helped. You know, he knew that George Russell was waiting in the wings, and at some point he was going to lose his seat. They never gave him the the longer term contract that he wanted, so it was it was only heading in one direction. I actually think. There's another sort of unusual dynamic that can really work, and that is having a world champion or proven almost elite or elite driver who actually doesn't really care so much about being the number one driver or really worry too much about the internal internal dynamical politics. Someone like a Kimi Raikkonen or a Jensen Button when he was at McLaren Honda, they worked quite well with a top driver alongside them just because they were comfortable in their own skin established in their own way of working and happy to be alongside Alonso and Vettel in Kimi's case or Alonso in in Button's case but usually when that kind of driver gets into that scenario they're nearer the end of their career than the beginning so maybe they're not at their absolute best 
I'd say probably Raikkonen is the ideal teammate in the sense that even when he was at his peak, I don't think he really cared too much about who the other guy was in the other car. That can have, I think, downsides in terms of the working relationship for the wider team and driving the car forwards. But it does create what I would describe as an apolitical situation for a team, which can be quite handy. And you still get usually a very high level of performance in the second car. It does fundamentally come down to the characters and approaches of the drivers, as has been alluded to. And I think you can never be totally sure how it'll play out until you put them at the front alongside each other, because sometimes it can work quite well. And it's a tricky thing as well to find a good number two, because I'd say they actually need to have enough of an aspiration to depose the number one, to keep pushing and keep working and keep trying. Otherwise, they just sort of relax and slump, and then they do end up battling with Yuki Tsunoda in Abu Dhabi 2021. Whereas <laughs> if they've still got that desire, they can keep pushing and working and challenging themselves. And I think Bottas sustained that for a very long time at Mercedes. Actually, people say, oh, he's a bit delusional, and maybe it was, but it pushed him on and he worked really, really hard. It's just ultimately, particularly when it came to the race day, he wasn't quite up to the uh, uh, up to the standard needed. But yeah, it's it's very, very interesting and it's forever troubling for teams. I do like teams that go for the best possible pair of drivers but I'd say that's not just in terms of the level of the drivers but with a blend that works quite well yes but also sometimes you can get into a situation where apparently complementary drivers don't really work I think of a Lacey and Berger when they were teammates they they kind of got too comfortable being teammates even though they didn't really like each other and almost underperformed the level of their their teams and then the team can start to lose trust in the in the pairing that it's established. Scott, you mentioned Haas before and, and Hulkenberg being signed to essentially push Magnussen to raise his game because he'd become too comfortable. But prior to that, they obviously had Magnussen and Grosjean, whose driving styles were quite opposite. And that can be quite challenging for a team in the sense that even if the two drivers individually are quite strong and very good level drivers for that level of team, they might not gel just because the team can't really decide which direction to go in with the car or even make both drivers comfortable enough to deliver their best and that's an, that's an example of a, a driver lineup that on paper given their track record should have worked quite well but in reality it just didn't I would also factor in we Ed, Ed mentioned it had been alluded to but that's where personality comes in as well right because that Haas lineup you, you talk about there Magnussen and Grosjean is another one where it is on paper as you say like it looks really good for someone like Haas but you've also just signed two drivers who have the personalities and driving styles that make them the most likely to drive into someone else on a given racetrack and you're putting <laughs> them in the same team which means that because they're going to be driving identical cars they've got a heightened chance of being near each other on the same racetrack and that means they've got a decent chance of driving into one another and we did see that didn't we when Haas started to slip into having a tricky time of it and there were a little bit you know there were there were broader tensions at play and opportunities were few and far between Grosjean and Magnussen tripped over each other a couple of times um, pointlessly and that kind of thing can creep in as well like if you don't get the right personality then okay you're you are looking for you know driven competitive people they, they're not going to be f1 drivers unless they are you know broadly ticking those boxes but if you get the judgment that chemistry between them slightly wrong then a bit of toxicity can can creep in and it doesn't have to be Hamilton Rosberg levels of these people can't work together it can manifest itself in other ways like pointlessly having clashes on track in an Esteban Ocon Sergio Perez way just because neither of them know how to yield and they don't particularly like or respect the other person 
it's important to note the teams themselves have a responsibility here as well and that they need to create the environment where it works. They need to have a degree of not taking any nonsense from their drivers. There's often a bit of a balance of power battle between uh, between drivers and, and the team boss. But if you've got two strong drivers, you can maybe use that to your advantage if you're running the team. But the key thing is you don't want it to become counterproductive to the team's objectives. You Okay, you want to let them battle away, but you don't want to let them start deliberately misleading each other, that kind of thing. And that's where I think a strong team boss comes in. We saw that a little bit earlier this year at Monza when Andrea Stella was pretty strong about, right, McLarens don't drive into each other after Norris and Piastri had had that little clash he could easily have just shrugged it off and just let it happen because it didn't cost them anything. But he realised he needed to lay down a marker, which I thought was quite important because they could be uh, problems to come in the future. And reminding them that the team is ultimately the uh, the, the the most important thing in this scenario is uh, is significant. So yeah, it's an interesting challenge. And for the reasons you've outlined, it's not easy to do. And there are some interesting pairings on the grid this year in terms of that particular challenge that we'll get onto in a moment. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Well, Scott, let's address the first of our current lineups, which is the Lewis Hamilton versus George Russell battle at Mercedes. That started to get a bit lively recently. How do you think that partnership's working? Who has the upper hand, would you say? And is it a positive for Mercedes? Yeah, I think you've. Uh, I think it's right for you to to throw to me for this one because I think an alpha male uh, driver lineup in Formula One needs to be handled by the top dog on the podcast as well. So, hang on a um, second. I've, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Uh, I think the way it's worked with Hamilton and Russell is actually it's broadly how I expected it to when we knew that they were coming together. Obviously, they're fighting over scraps relative to what we all thought or hoped that would be on the cards, and I do think that the way that it's playing out would be slightly different if there were race wins and titles on the line regularly. Um, but I think I still think that the upper hand lies with Hamilton because there is there there are still just as many examples of him having the edge on Russell in qualifying as there are where Russell builds, you know, a, a run of momentum and races where he's the one who's who's got the upper hand there. So Russell hasn't completely, you know, it's not like he's toppled Hamilton from a pure performance perspective and Hamilton's just hanging on through his experience and guile and stuff like this. You know, Hamilton is is still making a very good case in terms of outright ability. But that experience and stature and reputation counts for an awful lot. Um, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to what he wants from the car and what he wants Mercedes to push towards. And I still feel like that is something that that, that Mercedes does 
does value and will ultimately count for a little bit more when they try and work their way out of these problems. I know there's been all sorts of talk about, you know, has Hamilton got the changes he wanted? And there are some people who are either pro-Hamilton or anti-Russell, I don't know exactly where their allegiance lies there, who feel that Mercedes have just listened to Russell too much and have thrown Hamilton's input to one side and they're paying the price for it now. And I just don't think that's the case at all. But I think as they work their way out of it, it will be Hamilton that they lean on more because he's just ultimately like look at the success he's had and how good he is he's the one that you can lean on you can just trust that you can lean on him a little bit more you still see us enough respect between them on track you know Suzuka was a good example it was very very aggressive and maybe maybe slightly nudged over the line once or twice in a couple of moments but I don't think it was through necessarily malice or intent so I think the way that they went about things there shows that of those leading you know that of of those absolutely potentially explosive driver pairings, they know in the current circumstances just about where to toe the line. So I think it's working as expected, and it's working well for Mercedes. Working well at the moment, but to me, this is <laughs> this is the driver pairing that's the accident waiting to happen. It's Mercedes gently peering back into their Hamilton Rosberg hellscape of the not too distant <laughs> past. Like Hamilton's got the legacy; he's been there what ten years now. So Mercedes, I think, as an organisation, is automatically going to defer to him. You know, he's a legend of Formula One with incredible track record. At the same time, they have deliberately placed alongside him a guy who has the skills and talent to be a number one driver. This is as close, I think, as we've got. There's maybe one other example to having two number one drivers in the same team, but at a circumstantial point where... The second of those two number ones is still coming up, learning his craft a bit and has been kind of designated the heir to the guy who is going to retire at some point in the near future. So Mercedes is hoping to kind of delicately juggle a situation whereby its established number one superstar is going to gently ease himself towards the exit door while their up and coming future number one driver is going to step into his shoes. And of course, Russell was embedded at Mercedes as a junior driver, has talked a lot about how much he studied Hamilton and learned from him. So Mercedes is probably thinking, well, we've we've created a, a, a second Hamilton as best we can, another British driver who's schooled in Hamilton's ways and has watched him work and hopes to replicate that as far as possible when his own time comes. Of course, that means Russell has to play a waiting game while peers of his establish themselves in other teams and maybe nudge ahead in terms of their own progression and I think we're just starting to see the beginnings of that tension between what Mercedes wants to do in terms of managing its lineup and what Russell wants for his own career and he's he's a sensible guy he's going to play that waiting game for a certain amount of time and I think Scott's right while Mercedes are not fully competitive you're not really seeing the best of either driver because there's bigger fish to fry in terms of identifying the car weaknesses homing in on them solving them but once that car becomes properly competitive and wins and a championship fight is on the line that lineup isn't going to work it's going to become really really difficult for Mercedes to manage and Toto Wolff is going to have a lot more stress coming into his life uh, trying to deal with those two going at each other I think yeah, I, I agree that that is the big weakness of it. Um, I feel that it's the number one pairing in terms of the ability across the two drivers. It's the number one pairing in terms of um, probably equal with Ferrari, I would say, in terms of the drivers that 
get the most out of the car and then contribute to the team's causes. Russell's left a few more points on the table than he should have this season through some some mistakes and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of knocked them back a little bit this year, but they're still very much their first or equal first, I think, on that metric as well. But where they have either... Um, a weakness or an, as Ben says a, a waiting to emerge weakness is potentially in that kind of chemistry is the wrong word because I think the two off track do work very well together and I think that youth versus experience blend is really really good and it's just a nice starting point you got that kind of master apprentice kind of relationship that can work for for a reasonable amount of time until as Ben was sort of saying the the interests don't align necessarily anymore whatever you want to whatever word you want to use to describe that that is the bit where they risk you know it goes from being a 10 out of 10 on the other two scores to being you know is that a is it an 8 or 9 out of 10 now but potentially only a 5 or 6 out of 10 when they start taking lumps out of each other and then if you because that's kind of how I had it in in my mind not to skip too 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 far ahead but in trying to work out where the current teammates rank because the idea of what's the best teammates is entirely subjective depending on what criteria you impose to try and if try and split it into three categories which is outright ability contribution to the team and then chemistry or whatever other word you want to use those are the sort of three areas that's what i'm saying like i think the merc one comes out on top on the first two but potentially fall short on the third one as the circumstances change i think it's still i think it's good at the moment but that's the area where it can slip i think it would probably work a lot better according to mercedes master plan had hamilton won that eighth championship in 2021 because then you kind of think well okay so he's he's achieved all he needs to achieve and he was talking very much in the early days about you know russell being the future of the team and mentoring him and what have you but now he's reconciled the disappointment of missing out on that championship and determined to win it somehow in the future. That means Hamilton's mindset will have to shift. He can't spend his time with an arm around George's shoulder. Not that George would want that necessarily as he becomes more established in his own right. He has to think about number one and winning that that championship that he missed out on in 2021. So that will inevitably, if Mercedes get themselves into proper shape, become a, a huge flashpoint because you can have two super competitive guys wanting the same thing at the same time. So it's a it's a problem down the road, but I think at the moment they're just about just about okay. It's worth noting that the whole thing about established star and then the number two serving their apprenticeship alongside them, that's probably not worked in Formula One for about 40 years now. It just doesn't work. Because if you accept <laughs> that you're going to be the number two, you then get cast as a number two. And I think, well, if you're just going to sit there and be number two, we need to get a new number one. So, yeah, it, it just doesn't work. And, yeah, I'd, I'd actually agree. It's, that it's very hot- 1970s, isn't it? <laughs> I was about to say, I know, I know exactly what driver pairing you're thinking of, Ed, for the last one that that probably succeeded as. Which one were you thinking of there? I'm thinking Jackie Stewart and Francois Severe. Well, that uh, that would have worked very, very nicely. But yeah, it, it's kind of it is kind of once you get into the 80s that it starts to be disrupted and and things don't work as as hoped, and then it's just yeah gone out the window. So yeah, it's it's, it's interesting in that regard. But, yeah, yeah, it, I think I do agree. The civil the Civil War era really kicked off in the 80s, didn't it? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it's kind of yeah. been established really ever since. And I do agree that actually the timeline for Mercedes hasn't worked out quite as nicely as it maybe perhaps should have done and it looked like it would for various reasons so uh, they could almost have done with Russell being like three or four years younger and coming through um, because that would probably have made the handover nice and easy but 
they had to use Russell, so it, it makes sense that, that Mercedes are doing this. Should we move on to Ferrari, Ben? Charles Leclerc's the de facto number one, as we always say, but yeah. Carlos Sainz just keeps sort of chipping away. Every time he sort of falls back, he picks himself up. Do you think that is overall to Ferrari's benefit, or is there a wider problem there? Oh, I think at the moment it, it just about works. It's To me, it's almost the inverse of what's happening at Mercedes because Ferrari had its title shot almost in 2022 and science was struggling particularly at the start so it made it easier to kind of coalesce around Leclerc's push but you could see a few flashpoints you know science is very smart very good at fighting his own corner and the team orders challenges and strategy problems some of them anyway that Ferrari had in 2022 and then many of them obviously were were down to mishandling a situation between Leclerc and Sainz think of Silverstone and Ferrari not allowing faster car through very quickly sometimes Sainz saying questioning a pit strategy and saying no we should do this when the car was more competitive he was prepared to push and fight his corner I think this year where the clerk's been a bit neutered by the car balance and I guess the fact that Pirelli moved to that different front tyre that was designed to to dial out some of the inherent understeer. Obviously, Ferrari, I, I feel, had built their car originally for the new regs around Leclerc's very oversteer favoured driving style, and it's almost tipped him too far over the edge for, for this year with the new tyres, so he's had to come back. The car's not suited him. It, it suited Sainz a bit more. So they've kind of converged a bit, but in a situation where Ferrari overall are not competitive... So they don't need to really fight tooth and nail for anything. They've worked together quite well because, again, there's that bigger fish to fry of we need to get the team and the car back to where it belongs. I feel like if Ferrari do hit that sweet spot again with Sainz having the extra experience and all the work he's done behind him, that could become tense. But I'm not quite sure, with the greatest of respect, that Sainz is quite as close to, to Leclerc on pure pace as Russell could be to Hamilton. So I think there might just be a natural settling of that where Leclerc, when the car is better suited to him or he's adapted himself sufficiently to drive with the balance he's not quite comfortable with, he will he will beat Sainz because the peaks are just that little bit, that little bit higher. But it, it still needs careful management. And I, I guess that's where... Fred Vassell will really earn his corn because, you know, he's got, he will realise he's got a job to do there because science is, science is not a comfortable teammate for anyone to have. I don't think anyone would say science is the out and out fastest or potentially the out and out fastest driver in F1, but he's, he's a very, very well-rounded driver who keeps improving, keeps finding new ways to unlock more from himself. So as long as he doesn't end up in that kind of Bottas scenario where you can be mentally crushed by just not being able to realise your ambitions or not be able to come to work with that motivation to keep on improving, then he will make Leclerc's life or whoever's his teammate, he will make their life very difficult indeed. I don't remember which one of you said it in that sort of early part of the the conversation right at the start of the podcast, but signs for me is that is just the perfect example of that driver who in his current environment hasn't yet realised or accepted that he is or will be the number two, but that is effectively the role he plays. But he's such a good number two. You know, he's a great 1.5 driver. 
um, that he basically offers Ferrari everything that they need from a Leclerc wingman. If Leclerc is going to be the driver that Ferrari does ultimately pin pin its hopes on when the car's competitive enough to fight regularly for wins or if it's ever competitive enough to, to, to do that, then look, it makes sense, I think, because there is just that there is ultimately that underlying performance difference between them where Leclerc just does, I just think he just does have a tenth or two on signs and signs can have a brilliant number of his best days over the course of a season where he runs Leclerc close or just beats him outright. But he, I don't think he will ever just be the outright faster of the two drivers in a straight fight. Now, they might never get that straight fight because the car characteristics might intervene or there might be other problems that, that have too much of a of an influence. But I do I do think here we have the driver lineup that just is the best balanced. If I would go back to those sort of three fictional categories that I came up with in terms of outright performance, in terms of contribution to the team, in terms of chemistry and the way they work together... There are no glaring weaknesses. And I actually think that in terms of the way they work together, now it might not be in Sainz's interest to be the de facto number two long term and he might decide, that's it, I've had enough, I'm off. But all the while he's there and this does exist, they have fascinating um, crossovers in, in ability. And you know where Leclerc might be a bit weaker, actually, that's where Sainz is really strong. So they, I just feel like there will always be a Ferrari driver there to get the most out of the car on a given weekend, which is really what you want across your driver pairing yeah there's definitely a, an advantage for ferrari in having science's technical ability uh to complement the clerk and actually help bring the clerk on i think even bonotto talked about how charles and his understanding of the tires and and how to progress the setup and improve from having science alongside him and probably was a kick on from having Vettel alongside him who also was a very technical driver that's not really the clerk's strong suit he's just the kind of pure gung-ho get in the car and rag it and just mystify you with how quick he can go kind of driver he has to build some of these other things still I think into his skill set but there's also a mindset question that I'm interested in because the clerk I think in an interview with you Scott said at the end of last year that he needed to work on on some of those examples I gave with science, being more forceful in certain situations, being more of a leader in the car rather than deferring to the team on certain calls, strategy or driver swaps or what have you. And then this season, okay, the stakes are much lower, but he very much decided and agreed to play the team game in Singapore and and sacrifice his own race so that science could win for Ferrari. So the clerk very much has that I'm going to put the team who he loves. It's quite clear he absolutely loves Ferrari. He's like, you know, any of the guys and girls that work in Maranello. He's pure passion for Ferrari. He's prepared to sacrifice himself for the team. Most number one drivers, when the chips are down in Formula One, they won't do that. Vettel wouldn't do it. I don't think Hamilton would do it. Some of, some of them won't even sacrifice a sixth place at Brazil or exactly. whatever it was. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that, for me, you could say that that's a weakness of Leclerc, that he's too nice or not selfish enough. Equally, you could say, well, in the circumstances of this season where Red Bull are so dominant, it doesn't matter. He might as well earn himself a few internal brownie points by allowing Science to win a race where in the bigger picture... It doesn't really matter, you know, the clerk's established and when Ferrari get there, he will just relentlessly be the fastest guy and therefore de facto number one, as Ed put it, and will win the championship. But 
that mindset is helpful to Ferrari in terms of managing the dynamic between the two drivers because you've got effectively a de facto number one who's quite nice in terms of how he approaches things rather than ruthless and selfish. What I don't know is if the situation is different and Ferrari are absolutely properly contenders or dominant, does Leclerc suddenly change incredible Hulk style into some you know egotistical, ruthless, relentless winning machine monster? I'm not sure. I feel like maybe he's too nice, but I don't know for sure yet. Yeah, that's very much one still to play out. How about, Scott, Perez and Verstappen? Because Perez is the one driver in the top teams who is overtly a support act in the team that is built around Max Verstappen. What's a fair way to judge a driver like that? Because it's not simply about being a step behind. That's easy, isn't it? It's the size of the step. Yep. So I think there is obviously a performance expectation there that's nowhere near as severe as when you're trying to judge two of the so-called alpha drivers against one another. Um, So I think you afford in that situation in the same way as like like Bottas was an interesting contrast because he was in effectively the same role. Um, Not quite as overt, but effectively in the same role. But he was so fast. Like Bottas's strengths and weaknesses are basically the inverse of Perez's. Um, So he was so quick that actually the gap to Hamilton was never the problem. It was just like so frustrating how it always just fell away on most Sundays. Whereas with Perez, you're kind of like, okay, well, he's he's probably very rarely going to be within two or three tenths of a snapper. Like two or three temps is going to be a decent afternoon's work for Perez on a Saturday. What he needs to be is close enough to Verstappen that half a dozen cars don't fill the gap in between them because then he can't do his job on the Sunday. And his job on the Sunday is to be Verstappen's rear gunner, win the races that Verstappen messes up in, which is obviously vanishingly rare, uh, is screwed over by the team in, suffers a mechanical problem, gets hit by another car, whatever it's going to be. Perez has to be there to pick up the pieces as much as possible. That That's his job. The fact he's only had, I think, four second place finishes this year, which is the same number as Lando Norris at McLaren, shows that Perez isn't doing his job well enough this season. And regardless of the reasons for that, you, the mitigating circumstances of the fact that the car is developed in a way, such a way that Perez can't drive it confidently precisely because Verstappen can. And it's the fastest way to build that car and, and make that car. So they design it, quote unquote, around Verstappen because Verstappen can cope with the stuff that's required to make the car as quick as possible, right? Um, Perez, regardless of, of that factor, Perez isn't quite doing a good enough job. At the same time, he almost doesn't need to this year because Verstappen's single-handedly going to win Red Bull the Constructors' Championship. So it all becomes like a bit of a moot point because it's basically you you could only enter that you're only entering that car almost out of obligation in a season like this because your number one driver is so effective that it's kind of irrelevant. And correct me if I'm wrong, but am I right in saying that the two races Perez has won, he wouldn't he didn't win them for Red Bull. Verstappen would have been there to win them anyway. Yeah, there was one with a grid penalty and one with safety car mistiming. Yes, but the point is is that Verstappen was second in those races, wasn't he? So it's regardless of the circumstances that Perez won them, if he Red hadn't Bull would been, have won anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, yes, that, that's exactly. kind of my point. Um, yeah. Not to go off on a massive tangent, but it reminds me of when Fernando Torres was playing football for Chelsea and basically all of his goals were always like the second or third goal in a football match. And it's like, that's not why you've signed this guy. You know, he's there to win you the competition right not to just add some gloss to it and that's kind of what Perez does you know he's not fundamental to anything Red Bull has done this season really and 
there's actually a an outside chance he will cost them the one thing that that Red Bull would quite like but isn't entirely in control of, which is that one-two in the drivers' championship because they've never done it. You know, he he can't cost them the constructors' championship. He can't cost them the drivers' championship at the moment. He can't even cost them race wins. So the only thing he can cost them is one two in the drivers championship and if that happens in a season like this then he's massively underperformed yeah rebels rebels entered that that 2018 bottas phase where everything sort of crumbles and then he has to either rebuild himself which bottas did fairly effectively or move on like perez has suffered from thinking he could get the better of Verstappen and have a shot at the championship, knowing the car was dominant. He's like, right, this is my Nico Rosberg versus Lewis Hamilton moment. This is my time. Obviously, he had a couple of wins early in the season too with, as you say, Max there. Okay, Saudi Arabia wasn't a straight fight, but Baku near enough was, apart from obviously the the safety car intervention and the, the pit stop timing jumping him ahead. But once he was ahead, he got the job done. So you could see Perez with his tail up, I've got a chance. And then the inflection point comes in Miami where he should win because he's got pole and Max is down the grid and he still loses the race. And I feel like Perez after that point, it's gone. Head's gone. He's tried too hard to chase Verstappen and he's ended up performing worse than he would have done if he just accepted it was like the season before, your number two to back up Max, do what we say, score the most points you can for the Constructors' Championship. And Horner likes to make the point that, you know, Perez would have won four more races this year if Max wasn't there because he's finished second four times. But of course, that ignores the fact that someone else would be in Max's car who might do a better job. And also <laughs> the ten, the ten races where he's just not been where he needs to be, where someone else from another team would have won races had Max retired or something unfortunate happened. So Red Bull has that problem. Perez underperforming against his own expectations, then underperforming against the team's expectations. I think the the most damning thing for Perez is that they bought Daniel Ricciardo back into Alpha Tauri mid-season because that says already that Red Bull's lost faith and is looking down the road at we need to start lining things up to get somebody else in that car. We're not going to stay on top forever. And they need not only to plan for a scenario where other teams are more competitive and they can't afford to carry a passenger in the second car in the Constructors' Championship. But also, what happens if something untoward befalls Max and he can't race? You know, if he has a Schumacher 99 moment or when the rules change, he decides, I've had enough, I want to go and race sports cars with my dad and do more online stuff and I've had enough of Formula 1. Sergio Perez is not the guy that you can count on to lead Red Bull as a championship force. So they need a second driver or someone in reserve who they know they can call on in an instant who can be at, maybe no one can be at Max Verstappen level, but close to Max Verstappen level. And Sergio Perez is not that driver. So Red Bull probably had their sweet spot in 2021 and a little bit of 22 with Perez. And now they're they're past that. And it's about where do we move next? What kind of dynamic do we chase? Do we need to get kind of two number ones again, a one and a 1.5? Obviously those flirtations with Norris, you know, he kind of fits that first category. Ricardo maybe would be, quite a good number two in the future if he can find a bit more performance he's going through kind of his later Kimi Raikkonen phase of his career I think whereby you know he's maybe not he's had his best days but there's a track record there he works really well with Max they were quite matey even though they were flashpoints based on the particular dynamic of Max coming into that team but that's water under the bridge now so if Ricardo's quick and he 
goes back into Red Bull alongside Max, that might work well for a time. But still, you know, is Ricardo going to lead uh, in a post-Max Verstappen Red Bull into a bright future? Probably not. So whatever they do, they've got some some big question marks hanging over their driver lineup, as we've reported on extensively, and some big decisions to make over the next 12 months, especially. An interesting little way to try and put some numbers on it is that Perez has 223 points to Verstappen's 400 points. That's about 55, 56, just under 56% of Verstappen's points total. Historically, you want them to be a little bit higher than that, kind of around the 63, 64, 65% amount. And I'd say really you want it to be 70, 71. Low 70s is probably okay for a number two driver in a championship winning team. So I think that gives an idea of sort of where Perez's output needs to be and why it's a little bit low at the moment. But uh, that's just one way to, uh, to calculate it. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, let's try and bring this to some kind of conclusion, Scott. You can bring in some of the other driver lineups we haven't talked about. We've only talked about the, uh, the the top three so far. But how do we decide which driver lineup is the best in Formula One based on all the different versions of the criteria we've discussed? Yeah, so I think I've mentioned it a couple of times now, but I, I like that broad split of ability, contribution and chemistry. I think that's quite a nice way. There are other elements to that, obviously, um, you can have, I think it kind of fits into chemistry. I've said a couple of times, probably not the right word for it, but maybe like kind of team dynamic is the way, because then within that you've got quite a, it's quite a broad, broad spectrum, but it's also, it's things like not just the way that they work together as individuals, but it's also where are they in their given careers? You know, do we have a master apprentice situation? Uh, do you have something that's not quite as overt as that, but is a nice blend of youth and experience. So they bring different things to, to the table. So I'd say, in broad terms, those are kind of my three categories. And I still feel like, um, well, actually, Ed, as a starting point, do you, is it worth you, um, do you want to tell everybody or remind everybody where we voted the respective lineups at the start of, of 2023? Yeah, at the start of 23, we had it in uh, in this order. First, the Mercedes lineup, Hamilton and Russell. Second, Ferrari, Leclerc and Sainz. Third, Red Bull, Verstappen and Perez. Fourth, McLaren, Norris and Piastri. Fifth, Alpine, Gasly and Ocon. Sixth, Aston Martin, Alonso and Stroll. Seventh, Haas, Magnussen and Hulkenberg. Eighth, Alfa Romeo, Joe and Bottas. Ninth, Yuki Tsunoda and Nick DeVries at AlphaTauri. And tenth, Williams, Sargent and Albon. I think that's probably changed a bit by what's happened this year. (laughs) 
it has it has a little bit. I was looking at that and thinking, actually, I think uh, certainly think of one lineup that I'd bumped down at least a couple of places. The 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 Alonso Stroll one just hasn't hasn't worked anywhere near as well as it as it should have. I think I'd I'd argue that Stroll's stock as an F1 driver is very possibly at an all time low um, at the moment. Um, and obviously we've got three different AlphaTauri driver lineups that we need to be factoring in. So you've got AlphaTauri 1, AlphaTauri 2 and AlphaTauri 3 and they all probably occupy slightly different places um, in, in the list. But yeah, I, I, when I when we did that, um, when we were asked to make our submissions to, to that, we worked it out as like a group task. My kind of default there was just like, what's the outright best? That like, there's just the outright best in terms of ability. That That was what I considered to be kind of the that's why i say it's such a subjective um uh task so my contribution was based purely on 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 the ability of the the driver pairings i'm actually not unhappy with that still in in hindsight maybe one or one one or two tweaks but it's really interesting when you add those other elements i'm talking about so the contribution to the team and the the, the the team dynamic as well because for me in that situation the mercedes one is still on top but I think it's basically neck and neck with Ferrari I think the Ferrari driver lineup is so so strong um, and then the others it's really quite interesting the only other one I think that is really consistent across the three the three elements that I'm looking at is probably McLaren that Lando Norris Oscar Piastri combination is really really effective it's probably secondary to Merck in terms of the potential for it to get combustible just because you've got two drivers there, with they're in broadly similar phases of their career in terms of they're young, they're hungry, neither of them have won a race, they want to achieve so much. If they're bet on McLaren being the team to bring them the success they want pays off, they're going to need to assert themselves as the, the leading force within that team. So McLaren, I think, is actually the very interesting one. I think in hindsight based on how the year's developed, how Piastri has developed as a driver, the way that it's worked, I'd bump them above Red Bull now in my personal um, ranking overall when you, you factor everything in. But it's really interesting because it's probably got the spiciest potential. Now you've caught up to me, Scott. In my uh, in my individual ranking, <laughs> I had Norris and Piastri ahead of Verstappen and Perez because precisely for the reasons outlined, Perez, I think, has been a disappointment and he's continued to be. And Piastri has kind of lived up to the hype and the the fact there was such a contractual wrangling over getting him in the car. Probably Piastri Norris is at the stage that would have been ideal for Mercedes with Hamilton and Russell had they put Russell in the car as a rookie rather than blooding him in at Williams because Piastri's obviously still learning his craft so Norris is number one at that team. Piastri's giving him a hard time pushing him on with his pace but as you outlined in a recent article Ed the race pace and some of the the broader skills aren't quite as refined yet so that kind of naturally settles that lineup at a clear number one and two dynamic but Piastri obviously has the potential to become much more than that in the future seasons so that as Scott says that will become a problem but while McLaren's still building up again it's not quite so acute because they're not competing for absolute best results quite yet whereas obviously Mercedes is a bit more established the expectations are higher if they sort themselves out over the winter that will that will become more acute and could become very combustible I kind of agree with you that probably on balance the clerk science works across the range of criteria 
in a sense of complementary skills, good balance of pace overall for the team, not too difficult to manage. Would the circumstances change that? Well, it, it probably would change every one. I say the top the top three are Russell Hamilton, Leclerc Sainz and Norris Piastri quite close together and with different strengths and weaknesses. And then, you know, it's a, it's a bit more of a crapshoot as you go further back. No, Verstappen is carrying the Red Bull lineup completely. You'd probably bump them even further down if you were talking about the balance. You know, is the balance of having a Hulkenberg of Magnussen better than having a Verstappen and Perez? Maybe. Alonso is and Stroll is a similar version of Verstappen Perez, isn't it? You've got one driver completely carrying the team and the other guy nowhere near getting enough points or or results in the second car, but the team's overall performance and results this year have been so good that they probably don't worry too much about the second driver. So I feel like probably Perez and Stroll get a bit of a get out of jail free card for their underperformance just because the teams in different aspects have been much stronger than maybe everyone expected. Although you could end up with Aston Martin finishing one, two, possibly even three places lower in the Constructors' Championship, and that's 10 million plus per step. So that's that's starting to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And we outlined that in a kind of podcast earlier in the season about Stroll and his underperformance. But from Aston's point of view, obviously there's the dynamic of the team ownership, but they never expected to be second in the Championship. It's it's already an overachievement. So if they settle out at fifth, that's still better than they did last season. So you could objectively say, well, that's an improvement. So... It doesn't matter, but of course it does matter. You know, if they're a serious team, you can't afford... They're in a situation that Red Bull aren't, in that they're in a competitive part of the grid where every point counts, every grid position counts. Red Bull can carry Perez at the moment because of theirs and particularly Verstappen's dominance in almost all circumstances. Aston will find they can't carry Stroll, so they have a problem. They need to look at how do we find someone who can score a much higher percentage of Fernando Alonso's points consistently but it's very difficult to be Fernando Alonso's teammates he's one of those guys who because of his all-round skill set and his ability to go a bit like Verstappen does with the car as it gets faster whatever the team throws at it the teammate inevitably finds it really really difficult to keep up with him but that doesn't excuse Stroll you know he should even in that context be performing much better and Aston will pay for that down the line. Yeah, the way you described it, Ben, when you said it's basically a crapshoot behind those sort of top three teams, um, <laughs> completely unintentionally on your part, obviously, uh, reflects the little table that I made when I did a very, very rapid fire run through of ranking all of the 10 lineups against those three criteria and then but like giving them each a mark out of 10 and then tallying them tallying them up. And um, the, the rest of them, once you get past... Um, Merck, Ferrari and McLaren there are just wild swings between the three columns you know where one team might get a uh, you know like a 9 or a 10 out of 10 on terms of the ability of their their drivers because I just think as you say like Verstappen's carrying Perez and he's the ultimate benchmark of a driver so I still think that the fact that Verstappen's single-handedly winning the Constructors' Championship Verstappen is the best teammate pairing in Formula 1 on, <laughs> yeah. on, on, yeah. on, on just one car yeah exactly they should just become a one car team I think regardless of the potential regardless of the fact that there can be tension within that 
that relationship because of the Verstappen camp and the intensity with which Max operates and the fact that Perez doesn't always just sort of, you know, sit there and take it when he feels he's been mistreated. You know, it's not a 10 out of 10 for team dynamic, but it's an 8 or a 9 out of 10 for team dynamic because it just lets Verstappen get on with absolutely destroying everyone. You know, there's no... Like, if you had Alonso or Hamilton in that team, they'd just be at each other's throats all the time. So you have a big swing in, in that direction. In much the same way... As if you take Aston Martin, just to give an example of what I've done there, you know, I'd say that, that you know, Stroll eats away at the overall ability level of that that uh, driver pairing, and in contribution terms, it's a three or four out of a ten, uh, three or four out of ten for the teammate pairing because it's so lopsided towards Alonso. But again, it's a ten out of ten for the team dynamic because he's. He's he's not getting in Alonso's way. He's just it, Fernando can just do everything he needs to do there. It it means that there's no tension with the curiosity of the team ownership because the team owner's getting what he wants because his son's in one of the one of the seats. So dynamic wise, like there's no problem with there being an Alonso Stroll relationship. But that doesn't offset the massive loss in the other two columns. So I think <clears throat> I'm not going to run through all of them, but that's why I've got. You know, Aston down as, you know, it's less than Alpine, it's less than Haas, it's it's less even really, I think, than Alfa Romeo in terms of the balance of the driver pairing overall. And actually, if we judged it on the Alfa Tauri lineup for next year, Ricardo and Sonoda, I'd probably have Alonso and, and Stroll behind that now as well. You know, Alonso can only carry that lineup so far. So it's just a it's just an interesting. I'm not saying all of that just to bag on Stroll for no reason. It's basically, a, as we were saying, it's you know Verstappen, Perez, but in a midfield team. Yeah. It's just the 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 makeup of all the different lineups varies a lot behind those supremely good two or three driver pairings that we have at the top of our list. Yeah, I think I'd give a small shout out to the Alpine lineup of Ocon and Gasly. I think they're quite evenly matched pretty decent teammate dynamic at the moment there's obviously much bigger issues around that team and the chaos this year in terms of management probably disguises to an extent any underperformance of the drivers obviously there's the potential for the chemistry of that lineup to be near the bottom of the rankings because they historically don't get on but they seem to be doing a good job of keeping a lid on it at the moment so I think in terms of driver ability that's a very well balanced midfield lineup I, oh, I gave him seven out of ten across the board so <laughs> yeah I think and I think you know Hulkenberg Magnussen as you mentioned Scott you know that's a good lineup in the sense of plugging someone in who's very quick to push on the guy who was quite clearly much quicker than the younger driver they had before I think the the, the Alfa Romeo lineup is one of those examples a bit like Berger and Alacy where they've become too comfortable with each other almost like Bottas in his post post Hamilton post Mercedes career I'm not saying he's checked out but he's definitely I don't feel he's as intense as he used to be I don't feel like he's striving in quite the same way he's he's almost kind of enjoying a bit more of a work-life balance and just you know uh doing kind of what Kimi did in his latter career you know you get paid to race in Formula One you're one of the the 20 best at that time great you know just enjoy it and live it don't stress on it too much that isn't going to push that's not to say that he's only responsible because you know the team has other limitations but I don't feel like he's maybe going to push that team on in the way he might have done if he'd gone to it in 2017 and I think Joe is has done okay but 
is is a, is a Bottas who doesn't look absolutely 100% motivated to be the best version of himself, going to be the guy that brings Joe on if there's untapped potential there. And I think the fact that that team's been flirting with other drivers and at one stage looked like it might change its lineup completely tells you that that lineup's maybe a little bit too complacent. So that goes near the bottom for that reason. But yeah, to, to answer the, the title question, it's definitely between those top three. Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren. They are, I think, the standout best lineups overall. Okay, so final answer from both of you. Let's come up with our definitive answer. You've got to pick one. No draws. What is the best driver lineup in F1? I think it's still Mercedes at the moment. Mercedes by a nose. Ben? Uh, I I think I have to... I don't want to agree with that. <laughs> I'm desperately trying to find a reason why I wouldn't agree say, with it. Say, say, it's, uh, say it's us, you idiot. Yeah, cool, but of course it's us, doesn't that go without saying? So the second best lineup behind myself and Scott <laughs> is Ed and Glenn. No, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you'd have... Would you go with Russell? I think you have to go with Russell Hamilton. I think I, I, I love the crisis I think, that this has just caused. I think I think any situation where you have two number one or number one able drivers in the team that that elevates it. I think science isn't quite that for Ferrari. I think that's probably the nicest lineup to have at the moment. But Mercedes is the best, and probably Norris Piastri could become that in the future. But Piastri isn't quite there yet because he's just too raw. So I have to go with Russell and Hamilton and agree with Scott as much as I would like to disagree with him. Well, if I get my entry for 2026 um, and I'm having to choose between either being able to have the Merck drivers, the Ferrari drivers or the McLaren drivers, I'm not going to be too unhappy (laughs) if I got either of them. (laughs) I think if I was a team boss, I would like to have Leclerc Sainz at the moment. I think that that feels like the easiest lineup to manage at the moment. I think so. The best thing about the befuddlement you had, Ben, in your eventual answer is it saves me using the casting vote because I actually think it's quite similar for me. I think the complementary skills of Leclerc and Science makes that a very, very interesting contender for number one. But we've got our answer. The best lineup in F1 by a nose is Hamilton and Russell at Mercedes. So thanks very much to Ben and Scott for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, The Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, and also have a look at our YouTube channel, We'll shortly be packing our bags for Qatar, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.